whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in any other field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have just filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you would notice me? A foreigner. Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother in law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At the mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean... Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ether. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought back brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. 
Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, particularly a warm welcome for you tonight if you're uh, returning or you're new. Uh, lovely to have you. I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at City. Lovely to, um, to see you. Uh, last week we started a series uh, in the book of Ruth, and this is uh, Ruth chapter 2. So I'm going to pray for us as we have a look at uh, Ruth chapter 2 together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word tonight, would you open our eyes and our hearts to see how great and majestic and glorious that you are. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've not always worked for uh, City Church. I used to work for a church in the northeast of England. And that had a thriving student ministry. And the vicar who looked after the student ministry once said to me that after Christmas, uh, he was especially on the lookout for students who had been regular before the Christmas break, Uh, dropping off after the Christmas break. And he told me uh, the reason behind that. He said that sometimes over the Christmas break, students uh, would go home uh, from from the northeast of England, go back to their homes, maybe not get stuck into a church, and may take a big fall spiritually. And when term restarts in January, they would feel too ashamed or too spiritually dirty to return to church. And perhaps they thought they'd let God down really badly and he wouldn't have them back. Perhaps they're also unsure about how the Christians at church would react to them if they heard what they did. And what he would do is that he would chase uh, after them, those people who who he realized were regular before the Christmas break, but had dropped off afterwards. Look, you don't have to be a student to feel this way. You don't have to be a student to, to get to the holiday season, whether that's Christmas or summer, and take a big fall spiritually. We can all feel this way because in big ways and small ways, we all fail our Heavenly Father if we are a Christian. We all sin each day, and sometimes we spend a week or two weeks or even a month saying no to God and walking away from Him. And the key question that's in our hearts when we think to ourselves, uh, what do I do next, is this. If I did go back to God, if I did go back to church, how would God, how would God's people respond to me? If I did go back to God after the thing I've done or said or thought, and if I did go back to church, how would God or God's people respond to me if I turned back and return in repentance. And that answers that question is crucial because how you think God responds to those who turn away from him and turn back to him later on will either encourage you to turn back or will put you off from turning back. And I've only got one point uh, tonight and it's this. God is abundantly gracious to those who repent. God is abundantly gracious to those who who repents. Maybe many of you weren't here last week. Let me catch you up on Ruth if you weren't here in the previous episode of Ruth. Uh, so Naomi was married to Elimelech. They were, they were in uh, Israel, the Israelites. They believed in the God of the Bible, of the Old Testaments. But because of a famine in Bethlehem, Elimelech moved the family away from God's land 
to the neighbouring country of Moab. And that move away was both a geographical move, but also a spiritual move away from the Lord God of Israel, because it was in the lands of Israel that God would meet with people, and that would be where his blessing was. And so to move away from Israel, to move away from Bethlehem, which was their town, wasn't just a move, a geographical move, it was a spiritual move. And so whilst in Moab, darkness descended on Naomi as uh, Elimelech, her husband, died. And then her sons married Moabite women, which in the Old Testament was forbidden. And then 10 years later, her two sons died as well. Within the space of 10 years, she buried the three men who were closest to her. And Naomi was left in a foreign country with two Moabite daughters-in-law. And then on the grapevine, she heard the good news that food had once again come back into Bethlehem. The famine was lifted. God lifted the famine. And in Bethlehem, uh, there was bread. So she returned home. She turned and went back. And one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess, returned with her. And eventually, they arrived back in Bethlehem. And so that's what Ruth chapter 1 is all about. And as chapter 2 opens, the author lets us know, uh, as the readers, it lets us into a bit of a secret, a bit of information that neither Naomi or Ruth know at the moment. Have a look at at verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And you know what? That's not a throwaway line. When an author breaks into the narrative and says, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, I'm going to tell you something that Ruth doesn't know. It is significance. And the author has done that for a reason. And we'll soon discover that reason in a minute. But as the story continues, we need to realize that Naomi and Ruth are in desperate poverty. In that culture, back in uh, Israel, women had no opportunities to work. They could not work. There's no opportunities for them. And so they couldn't earn money. And without money, they couldn't buy food. And so they were desperately poor. They were on the poverty line. Uh, they, it was the equivalent of if you go down to five ways roundabout and see the homeless people begging underneath the roundabout. That is the kind of poverty that Ruth and Naomi were in back in Bethlehem. But Ruth is some woman because she doesn't sit there and wallow in her misery. She actively decides to do something, not only to feed herself, but also to feed Naomi, her mother-in-law, who she's pledged to go where Naomi goes and to die when Naomi dies. And so she asks Naomi, verses 2 and 3, if she can go and pick up any leftover grain uh, in the fields. And that might be a very strange request, unless you know your Old Testament. And so back in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, the Lord God said to his people, this is Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10, if you want to look it up later on, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest... Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. And so in a country where there was no social security, no dole to sign on to, no money from the government, it was God's way of making sure that that those in desperate poverty were cared for and that they could feed themselves Uh, It it would mean that the the landowners would take a hit financially because they wouldn't get all of their crops in, all of their grapes, all of their grain. 
but it would mean that people on the poverty line could actually be fed. So verse 3, uh, Ruth went out, entered a field, and began to, to glean, in other words, to pick up leftover grain behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. Now that's a coincidence, isn't it? She chose a field belonging to Boaz. Literally, the Hebrew says, as her chance chanced, she, she worked in a field belonging to Boaz. But it's not a coincidence because the narrator hasn't dropped in verse 1 uh, by accident. He's dropped in verse 1 to tell us uh, and to introduce us to Boaz as a significant figure in the story. And what the narrator is saying very subtly, and he said it a lot more uh, um, up front back in chapter 1, is that God's hidden sovereign hand guided Ruth to Boaz's field. It wasn't by chance that she turned up in Boaz's field. That's what verse 1 is there doing, saying, actually, look, here's Boaz, and oh, surprise, surprise, she ends up in Boaz's field. And so the Lord God guides Ruth unseenly so that he can bring blessing to her, bring blessing to Naomi, bring blessing to the nation of Israel, and then bring blessing to us as well. Actually, as, as Ruth finds that field, we are involved in it. Because uh, you could say that if Ruth never found that field, we might not have been sitting here with our sins forgiven. That's giving away a little bit too more, much of the storyline, Ruth, so I'm going to move on. Come back in the next few weeks to find out a bit more about that. So to put it another way, the sovereign God is plotting for Ruth's good and his glory. The sovereign God is plotting for Ruth's good and his glory. Ruth probably doesn't know it. She just said, oh, well, here's a field. looks quite nice. I'll go and uh, glean in that field. And yet unseenly, behind the scenes, hidden, God's hand is on her, guiding her just to the right field, who's owned by Boaz, who's related to her, well, related to Elimelech, uh, Naomi's dead husband. And God's big plan is to redeem a people from all nations for himself and to bring, ultimately, to bring them home to live with him. And the story of Ruth gives us a brief glimpse of how that plan unfolded at this part of the Old Testament. And the knowledge that God is sovereignly guiding all things, I think, is a great comfort for us because we may not feel it. Or see it, as, but if we're Christians, He has uh, His hand on us, sovereignly guiding us, whether we know it or not. He's sovereignly in control of the big decisions. You know, where do I go to work? Who do I marry? All those big decisions. But Ruth too reminds us, He's also sovereignly in control of the really little decisions. Which field do I go and glean in? Where do I go to work? Uh, what do I do with my day off? And so if you are in Birmingham, then you're not here by accident. There's some statistic, um, I say it a few times, I'm sure it's true, uh, that 50% of students who end up in Birmingham never put Birmingham as their first choice. Uh, they put it their second choice, but never their first. Um, but if that was you, you're not here by accident. You may not have chosen Birmingham, but God chose Birmingham. And the Lord God has sovereignly guided you here as part of his grand redemption plan to rescue a people for himself 
and to bring them home to the new heavens and the new earth. And I think that gives our lives meaning. Uh, it means that it's not random. It's not something that we, you know, we can just give up on our, our lives and think, well, it's just ra- random day after day. It doesn't really matter what's going on. God's not ca- caring for the individual things, but he is. He's in control. But also, I think the truth of God's sovereignty also takes the pressure off us a little bit. Because if God is in control, whether we see it or not, whether we feel it or not, we can trust him, can't we? Ruth probably never felt it. Uh, but God was in control of a little decision. And so God's sovereignty takes the pressure off us. And that's something we need to hold on to as a church. And don't know whether you're aware of that, maybe you're new, but as we look to appoint the very first ever lead pastor of City Church, it's not an exaggeration to say that, that this is the most important decision the church has faced in 20 years of its existence. And that statement could stress us out. Um, yes, of course, we need to work hard. Yes, we need to pray hard. But at the end of the day, we can rest knowing that whatever happens, our Heavenly Father is sovereignly in control of the process, plotting for our good and his glory, even if we don't feel it, even if we don't see it. Let's get back to the story, verse 4. <clears throat> Just then, the Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Well, that was lucky, wasn't it, Boaz turning up just, just then? But we know it's not luck. Again, it's got the Lord God's unseen sovereign hand moving Boaz. Uh, he's, he wants to redeem a people. And Boaz is key, and Ruth is key to that. And Boaz is drawn to, that, to the woman who's picking up the leftover grain. She's new. And so he turns to the overseer and says, who does that young woman belong to? Now, Boaz's question may make us slightly cringe inside. It sounds as if he's thinking of, of women as possessions. But we misunderstand Boaz if we think that. Far from being an offensive question, I think it's a kind question. What he's doing, he's asking, which family does that young woman belong to? Who takes care of her? I think that's the sense of the question rather than you know, who, you know, a belonging or a possession. Who takes care of this young woman? And Boaz's overseer replies, and there's a little bit of a, an edge to what he says. She is the Moabite who came from Moab with Naomi. Now, notice the repeated word, Moabite, who came from Moab. He's trying to rub it in. Oh, Boaz, she's that foreigner. She's come from Moab, our greatest enemy. Because Moab was to Israel what ISIS is to the USA. These two countries were mortal enemies who wanted to wipe each other off the map. And at this point in time, Ruth is very vulnerable. She's a foreigner. She is uh, from a country which is the mortal enemy of Israel. She's in a field outside the town of Bethlehem on her own. Anything could happen to her. Uh, the, the time of Israel is the time of the judges. Ultimately, it is the time uh, where uh, Israel is like the Wild West in America. Anything goes. It's anarchy and there's no law. Boaz could do something to her and no one would bat an eyelid. And so how is Boaz going to react to a foreigner and a mortal enemy whose country has always been against his country? How is is he going to react? Well, verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. 
And so Boaz reacts to her gently. He calls her my daughter. That's a gentle way of, of, of talking to her. It's also probably an indicator of maybe the age gap a little bit between her, Boaz, and himself. And he tells her to stay in the fields with the other women. Perhaps Boaz is afraid that if she goes into another field, she's going to get harmed and mistreated. If you read Naomi's comment in the end of the chapter, she too feels if Naomi leaves, uh, if Ruth leaves uh, the field owned by Boaz, she will get harmed. It's a bad time in Israel. God's people are not living God's way. And so Boaz makes sure that Ruth is protected. It must be a bad time, because look at verse 9. He instructs his men not to lay a hand on Ruth. You know, you're going to go and work into work tomorrow. Your boss is not going to say to those above you, don't attack attack you, don't do anything bad to them. It's a horrible time in Israel. It's not great. But, Ruth, but Boaz makes sure that Ruth is protected. Do not lay a hand on Ruth. But Boaz's goodness towards Ruth doesn't stop at protecting her. He also provides for her, verse 9. Look, Ruth, it's hot work gleaning the fields at harvest time. Whenever you feel thirsty, go to the water jars. Don't feel embarrassed. Get a drink. Please do not get dehydrated in this hot climate. And why, So why does Boaz protect and provide for Ruth? Why is that there? Well, our first thought might be, that the music is starting in, in his head, his heart is, is, is beating a bit faster, there's a bit of butterflies in his stomach. We might think that Boaz is falling in love with Ruth here. But if you read the text, that's not there. The author doesn't say that, that Boaz was falling in love with Ruth here. A more convincing explanation is that in the midst of a, a culture which is not obeying God's, and not being the Old Testament law, that, that Boaz is being a godly man by obeying the words of the law from the Old Testament. I say that because of verses like these in, in Leviticus 19 and verses 33 and 34. Joss it down. Let, let me, let me uh, tell you what it says. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not ill-treat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And so let me just pause there and make a slightly related point, but slightly off topic as well. And I don't know whether you feel this yourself, but the Old Testament, mainly from those who are, um, who are negative about Christianity, has a reputation of being regressive and oppressive and bloodthirsty. And as Christians, let's be honest... There are things in the Old Testament that are difficult to stomach. Let's not beat around the bush. There are hard things in the Old Testament. And yet, that's not the whole picture. Here is Boaz. He's he's older than Ruth. He's more powerful than Ruth. But he obeys the Old Testament law and his actions are beautiful, aren't they? It's beautiful because the God who gave this law to the Israelites is also beautiful. His Old Testament law reflects his character. How we wish more more people today would would act like Boaz's act. Otherwise, we wouldn't have things like hashtag Me Too and Harvey Weinstein. Older men who powerfully abused those beneath them. But Boaz is different. And he obeys God. And that is beautiful. And so, yes, there are hard things in the Old Testament to stomach. 
And yet, that's not the whole story. The Old Testament law can also produce you know, real beauty and real grace. And Ruth's reaction to how Boaz treats her is probably uh, similar to ours. She is completely uh, gobsmacked. She doesn't know what to do. She, she bows down, verse 10, at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked Boaz, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? You've noticed me, a foreigner. I can understand why you might treat the other Israelites with, with, with goodness. Why have you been so gracious to me, a Moabite? And the word favor is, just, is another word for grace. And why is this Israelite man shown so, so much grace to a foreigner in, in, the land, uh, in the land of Israel? Well, Boaz gives his reason, verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so the reason for Boaz's kindness is because Ruth has taken refuge under the wings of the Lord God of Israel. And that's a wonderful picture, a picture of the Lord God as a mighty and majestic eagle. And the eagle's wings are huge and they are powerful. And yet they are curved around a small and frightened and fragile little eaglet called Ruth because she has come to take refuge under him. And that is a picture of what it meant for Ruth to turn from pagan gods of Moab and come to worship the Lord God of Israel. And it's also a picture of what it means for someone today to trust in the Lord Jesus. It's giving up any other uh, object of worship and coming under the, the, the refuge of the wings of the Lord Jesus. And Ruth's decision to take refuge under those wings of the Lord God had implications. I wonder whether you saw that in verse 14. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. And Boaz knows that the Lord God will show favor or grace to those who come to shelter under his mighty wings. But his favour doesn't always always come directly from the Lord God. Instead, the Lord God pours out his grace to Ruth through a channel, through a man, Boaz. And so as Boaz protects and provides for Ruth, what is happening there is the Lord God is pouring out his grace to Ruth, who's come to shelter under his wings and take refuge. And so Boaz is like a waterfall of favour, showering Ruth of grace. But the source of the waterfall can be traced back to the gracious Lord God of Israel. But Boaz doesn't stop at showering Ruth of grace and favour. It gets a little bit uh, uh, comical, the amount of favour he shows in verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. And so Boaz provides lunch for Ruth, and the amount of food is so much that Ruth leaves with a doggy bag. And that goes back to Naomi at the end of the chapter. 
And Boaz's favour continues to get even more uh, comical and ridiculous in the, in the amount of things that he gives her. He goes above and beyond what the Old Testament law requires. Verse 15, as you got to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. And so the bundles would have had you know, the best stalks with all the, the grain on them. And Boaz is saying to his workers, well, pull out those stalks that you've already tied up uh, and allow Ruth to pick it up so that Ruth and Naomi have food to eat. Boaz is providing more grain for Ruth to feed herself and Naomi. And he's making a, a hit personally and financially because he'll have less grain to sell. And so after spending many backbreaking hours picking up leftover grain in the hot sun, Ruth's day is not done. She is uh, a particularly uh, special woman. She goes away and threshes the bar, which means she hits it. So the outer shell gives way and the grain comes out. And the day's work shows that she gets an ephath of barley. Now, we don't quite know how much an ephath is. Uh, maybe just think about a, a sack of potatoes, that kind of size. That, it's just a, an amazing haul for one day's gleaning. And she proceeds to lug that sack of barley from the fields back to her starving mother-in-law, Naomi. And now it's Naomi's turn to be absolutely astounded. She cannot believe what she's saying. How much grain? Verse 19, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And Ruth says that she's been working in the fields of, of Boaz, and Naomi is delighted, verse 20. The Lord bless him. The Lord bless Boaz, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. Just have a look at that second sentence. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Um, who, who is Naomi talking about? Who is the he that Naomi's talking about? Because initially I thought when I looked at it, I thought it was talking about Boaz. But it can't, she can't be talking about Boaz because there's no evidence that Boaz has shown kindness to the dead. In other words, kindness to the dead Elimelech, Naomi's husband, kindness to the dead sons, Marlon and Kilion, who died in Moab. Rather, I think, Naomi's talking about the Lord God. It is the Lord God who has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And the way in which the Lord God showed his kindness to the dead, to Elimelech and Marlon and Kilion, so Naomi's husband and two sons, is found in verse 20. She, Naomi, added, this man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Now, what on earth is a guardian redeemer? Well, a guardian redeemer is something mentioned in the first five books of the Old Testament. It was uh, usually a male member of a clan. So a clan was slightly bigger than a family, but smaller than the tribe. So they were related together, whose job it was to redeem or rescue another clan member who'd fallen on hard times. And so the person being rescued was often, but not always... Uh, a woman. So among many things, a guardian redeemer would purchase a relative out of slavery. If they got themselves into slavery, a guardian redeemer would buy them out of slavery. Or they would ensure a relative received justice in the law courts. But Deuteronomy 25 introduces another way in which a guardian redeemer could rescue or redeem a clan member. This is Deuteronomy 25, 
and verses 5 to 6. Uh, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, uh, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of her brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. And so for an Israelite man, having a son was vital. The son would continue the name of the father in the list of God's people. This, this is what's at stake, being part of God's people. And if an Israelite man died without a son, if, like, like Elimelech did, Elimelech died, his two sons died, he risked his name being blotted out from amongst God's people. And so the guardian redeemer would marry the widow in order to continue the name of the dead man, to have an heir and continue the name of the dead man. And Naomi sees the Lord God showing his kindness, his covenant kindness to the living and the dead. Because as guardian redeemer, Boaz could, re- could marry Ruth and provide for her and Naomi financially and feed them. And that would be the kindness to the living. But it'd also be kindness to the dead because if Boaz married Ruth and produced a son that son would continue the names of Naomi's dead husband and sons in the list of God's people. And so as we look back on chapter 2, the character of Boaz just stands out. He is a godly man who obeys God's words. When Ruth, the foreigner, and the enemy turns up in the field, he provides for her. He protects her from danger. Boaz shows his favour and grace because he knows Ruth has come to take shelter under the wings of the Lord God of Israel. And Boaz just keeps on showering grace upon grace on Ruth with just enormous generosity. Boaz is an amazing man. His personality is so attractive. We wish, I wish you know, I could meet Boaz. He, he sounds like an amazing guy. But Boaz is just a small picture, a little whisper of someone else. Boaz is an airfixed model of something truer and better and more real. The more real Boaz Because if our hearts are drawn towards Boaz, then in reality, our hearts are really being drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus is the truer and the better and the the perfect Boaz. Boaz obeyed the Old Testament law consistently, but the Lord Jesus obeyed the Old Testament law perfectly. He didn't even break it once. When Ruth the Moabite turned up in Boaz's field, he didn't drive her away, but moved to protect her and provide for her. And when we approach the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith, he takes us into his protection and provides for us. He showers with us abundant grace and favor. We're forgiven. We're adopted. We've got the hope of heaven. We have someone beside us who will listen to our prayers, who will forgive our sins. Those are great blessings in the Christian life. And Boaz is Ruth's guardian redeemer and we're going to have to wait to see whether he does redeem Ruth and Naomi from poverty but we know that the Lord Jesus is our redeemer we were in spiritual debt because of our sin and the Lord Jesus became a close relative of ours by becoming a human being that very first Christmas in Bethlehem and 33 years later he died on the cross he redeemed us he brought us back We were in spiritual poverty and Jesus paid the price to bring us back. And that's what we're going to be celebrating later on as we take uh, bread and wine. And so how would the Lord Jesus respond if I turn to him 
for the very first time and become a Christian. Remember that, that question at the beginning about how the Lord Jesus responds to people who, who turn to him? Well, the great news is he will respond to you like Boaz responded to Ruth. You may have been antagonistic towards him for years. You may have not been a Christian, thought it was absolute rubbish. And yet, if you come to shelter under his wings, he will not drive you away. He will speak to you gently, despite the fact that you were once his enemy. And he will protect you. He will get you safely home to heaven. And he will show grace and favour, uh, sorry, shower grace and favour all over you. It'll be almost comical as, uh, in the same way as Boaz got a little bit more comical in his generosity, he'll sh- sh- shower grace after grace over you. And that's an amazing thought, isn't it? About how uh, the Lord Jesus reacts when someone turns to them and repents for the first time. And the Christian life um, begins with one big step of faith and repentance. And the Christian life continues with daily steps of faith and repentance. And there are going to be times, if we're Christians, when we fail the Lord Jesus badly. And we may take a huge spiritual fall over the holidays, or we may deliberately decide to turn our back on him and walk away from him for a, a, a period of time. And that question that rings in, in your head is, how will the Lord Jesus respond if I turn to him, even though I've turned my back on him? As a Christian, even if I've had a huge spiritual fall and I can't even forgive myself, let alone think about the Lord Jesus forgiving me. And once again, Boaz is uh, a working model for us because he responds to Ruth in the way the Lord Jesus will respond to any Christian who comes back in repentance with overwhelming grace and overwhelming favour. And our Lord Jesus is very gracious. And he's very kind. And the Lord Jesus wants us to know what he's like for one reason, well, many reasons, but one reason particularly for this sermon, so that we quickly turn to him in repentance because we know the gracious reaction we're going to find if and when we do. And so maybe tonight uh, there are people here who are, are call themselves Christians, but maybe you've had a big spiritual fall over Christmas. Maybe you have turned your back on on the Lord Jesus and walked away for a number of days or weeks or months. And the thing that's going to to encourage you to turn back and repent isn't the strength of your repentance, it's the character of your saviour. Why not repent tonight? Because uh, he is gracious and he's kind. But let's think about what this passage means for us as a church. How might Ruth 2 shape our church culture? Because Boaz is not just a signpost. He's predominantly a signpost pointing forward to Jesus. But he's not just a signpost. He's also a model of how God's people should respond to those who turn to the Lord Jesus, either for the first time or for the hundredth time. And so Boaz showed loving kindness to Ruth and he spoke to her gently. He provided for her and he protected her. And the loving kindness that Boaz showed to Ruth is the loving kindness that the Lord Jesus wants Christians at City Church to show to others at City Church, whether they come to know the Lord Jesus for the first time or they come back as Christians after a long walking away. 
And if you think about the story in Ruth, you realize that God didn't just take Ruth aside and zap her with loving kindness. The way that the loving kindness reached Ruth was through a channel. It was through Boaz. And so Christians at City are the channels through which the Lord Jesus wants to shower his grace and favor through. And like Boaz, uh, are, are we responding with gentleness to those who are weak and those who are vulnerable, those who might not expect uh, a great welcome? Are we showering them with loving kindness? You know, Boaz's loving kindness cost him, cost him a bit of financially. Jesus' loving kindness cost him his life. And our loving kindness to others will cost us as we are the channels through which God can show loving kindness to, to each other. So are we committed to, other, uh, to others at City to pay that cost? To pay the cost of showing God's loving kindness to each other? It may mean we sacrifice some of our precious free time, maybe to spend time praying with and encouraging someone else. It may mean over coffee, uh, tea and coffee there. Instead of talking to your friends, you look and see that someone's on their own. I need to go and talk to them. It may mean sacrificing um, uh, money so that people uh, can hear more about the Lord Jesus. Whatever it is, uh, are we going to become a little more like the Lord Jesus that we see in Boaz? You know, who, uh, who at City Church could, uh, could benefit from you showing, showing loving kindness to them? Why don't you pray about that th- th- this week? So how will the Lord Jesus respond if I turn to him for the first time? If I turn to him for the thousandth time, having really let him down? Well, the wonderful news of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus will always respond like Boaz responded to Ruth, with great grace and gentleness. And that's what we need to take to our hearts because the more we believe that, the more we understand that, the quicker we will be in turning to him and the quicker we will be in repenting. And so as we close, let's pray together um, as we close this, this part of the service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that very often our thoughts about you are distorted. We find it easier um, to conclude that when some, some turn, someone turns or returns to you, then they find the cold sh- shoulder a prolonged period of time and the naughty step. But we praise you that you're not like this. We cannot quite believe it that you would respond to us like Boaz responded to Ruth with abundant grace. We praise you for your awesome character. We pray that your word would encourage us to be quick to repent because we were reminded about how gracious you are and how gracious you'll respond. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Jonathan.